Ashwin and welcome to the Syndic Book Club Author Q&A. It's a delight and an honor to have you join us for for the next one hour. And I, you know, I wanted to do a long, long introduction of you, but I don't think that is necessary. But since we are anyway, I think we should do a little bit of the formality. So folks, if for those of you who don't know, uh, Ashwin Sanghi is among India's uh, highest selling English English fiction uh, authors and uh, uh, he has written several bestsellers uh, categorized into basically three uh, different uh, types or series of books. The first one is what he calls the Bharat series and it started off with the uh, the Rosabal line in 2008. He followed it up with the Chanakya's chant in the year 2000, then Krishnaski in 2012, the Sialkot saga in 2016, and Keepers of the Kal Chakra in 2018. His latest book, The Vault of Vishnu, came out just over a year back in January 2020. And in between, he has found time to also co-author two books with the, the you know, another best-selling author, James Patterson, uh, which are known as uh, the Private Series, so Private India and Private Delhi. And if that is not enough, he has also authored about, I think, four or five books in the 13-step series on uh, luck, wealth, uh, uh, health, parenting, and so on. So with that, Ashwin, welcome. Thank you so much, Abhinav. And you know, when I always have a problem when the introductions are very nice and very elaborate, because then they are they set you up for failure. So the expectations turn out to be so high that you will always perform uh, uh, less than what the introduction seems to indicate. So uh, I have a bit of a, a problem with with great introductions. But thank you. Mine was not at all great, but there is, see, the question of setting you up for failure does not arise because with the 13 books under your belt, the number one bestsellers, I don't think that is a concern, uh, you know, any of us will have that, you know, we are, we are setting Ashwin up. Uh, let me start with the, your latest book, right? The Vault of Vishnu. Sure. Now, uh, you have yet again, you know, spliced up and reserved us, uh, uh, you know, these are hyperboles that we use, you know, page turner, thriller, and all of that. But uh, it holds true for your latest book also. You have spliced up the past and the present, the historical and the technological. In you know, it's a spy thriller meets historical saga. Uh, it uh, it uh, you know uh, ranges across multiple countries. Uh, whether it is you know uh, at the Art uh, temple or in the uh, and we were just talking about just the timing of the book also turned out to be very very interesting because the book came out in January 2020 and a couple of months later the lockdown hit and and you know things just ground to a halt. Tell us a little bit about this book. Well, uh, honestly speaking, I must tell you as far as I was concerned, the timing was almost uh, you could say uh, lucky or damn lucky, one of the two, uh, because. Um, on the one hand, of course, uh, had this book been slightly delayed, then I would not have been able to con uh, complete my research uh, because the book, uh, writing the book uh, required me to go into China a couple of times 
uh, which I did uh, in 2019. Um, on the other hand, uh, uh, when the book came out, that was around the time when the Galwan clashes were going on. And uh, uh, as a result of which this topic was on everyone's mind uh, that, uh, you know, what happens. And then there were news items which were coming out, which were indicating that China is talking about engineering superhuman soldiers. And uh, uh, suddenly everyone said that, you know, did Ashwin have an insight into what the future was going to hold? Uh, not realizing that the world of fact and fiction are very, very closely interrelated. So when fiction writers uh, write fiction, it's usually based on some kernel of truth that they picked up somewhere. Uh, and very often, of course, a lot of the things that happen in the world of uh, factual knowledge uh, tend to also be inspired by fiction. So had it not been for the movie Star Wars, probably uh, Ronald Reagan's entire space program may not have occurred. So, I mean, there, there, are, there is a two-way interchange going on. Uh, but as far as this particular book was concerned, uh, you know, uh, I one day was having uh, a cup of tea from a roadside stall and it was uh, a rather delicious cup of tea because of the extra sugar that had been put in it. And uh, the guy kept on saying, Saab, aap chini maar ke lenge kya? You know, I mean, uh, and uh, th this is a very common malai maar ke, chini maar ke. This is a very, very common phrase. Uh, and uh, uh, he was being generous with the sugar. And then I suddenly realized that the word chini itself comes to us from China uh, because uh, we treat it as a Chinese product. Uh, and of course, later on, I found out uh, that the first Chinese immigrant to Bengal in the late uh, 18th century was someone called Tong Achu, who had actually established this entire sugarcane plantation uh, and uh, had also created a sugar refinery. And that's the reason we started calling sugar chini. Uh, but funnily enough, if you notice from my book, uh, when the Chinese travelers, Wan Zhang comes to India, uh, one of the things that he is most excited by uh, is to discover sugar and candied sugars uh, or sugared candies. Uh, and he takes some back for the emperor Taizong when he goes back to China. And so if you really think about it, the idea of sugar was probably not known to China at that time. Uh, and so we had to take it to them. And then in the 18th century, they had to bring it back to us. Uh, and I just found this very, very fascinating, that this sort of interplay was perpetually happening in Indo-Chinese history. And that's how really the vault of Vishnu was born. This yes, this is fascinating, right? And uh, you know the the and I'll come back to this in a little bit when we you know go through the Q and A on you know the research part and how fact and fiction you know uh, sort of merges in into each other at so many different points. In fact, you mentioned Star Wars. Uh, the Indian NASA scientist who's been in the news lately, Dr. Swati, she says that, you know, she was inspired by the Star Trek series mm -hmm. that she watched growing up uh, as, uh, as a young immigrant child in the 1960s. So very true. Uh, in and, and tell me about the protagonist, right? Uh, uh, Pam Khanna. She is a very interesting character, as is her father, Colonel, you know, the late Colonel Khanna. And you have uh, thrown in a lot of, uh, uh, you know, Indian agencies from DRDO and RAW to the Intelligence Bureau. And, uh, but actually, let me step a little back. You start off with the, with clashes at Dokla. Yeah. 
and that essentially sets the book off uh, and uh, uh in now you know you talked about research now obviously you you've just said that you went uh, twice to china to do uh, uh research as part of your book but obviously not all of it is possible right the thing, the places that you talk about it's uh, in some cases it is not uh, so when you talk of doklam what led you to start the the you know book from doklam itself there are several places along the indo china border that have seen uh, that have been flashpoints right yes yes the the the, the uh, frankly uh, for for me it was a logical starting point uh, doklam because the matter the entire clash was very fresh uh, in one's memory and uh, there were umpteen articles appearing at that point of time uh, related to uh, related to the india china construct in some ways and this relationship has of course uh, abhinav been a very very complicated one uh and i will not right now go into the to the details of that but um the the reality is that we in india see our relationship with china only really through the prism of 1950 and thereafter uh and that was pretty much the year in which the people's liberation uh liberation army took over tibet uh and then of course subsequently aksai chin uh but the two countries then of course went to war in 1962 and we were hopelessly unprepared but you know china sees this relationship very differently they see it in the context of a much older and a wider prism uh i mean 3000 years ago the zhao monarchs believed that their empire occupied the middle of the earth so uh china was call- called zhuanghuao or middle kingdom uh you know a glorious empire surrounded by barbarians and subjugation of the barbarians was one's sacred duty so other kings would necessarily have to submit to chinese hegemony for this construct to really work and uh so in that sense in the chinese perspective an alliance between china and india by definition would have to be one of a master and a vassal under the middle kingdom approach and so i wanted to start with something like doklam which would which would bring that context to the fore that uh here you are as a country which is a democracy a vibrant democracy uh thinking that hey listen you know we uh, we have a rich and historical tradition uh of a relationship uh with this great kingdom and we share many many commonalities which have which we have transferred to one another uh, along the silk road uh but we see our relationship in the construct of what happened post 1950 whereas china sees it over 3000 years and i i thought this was a great way to bring out this particular element through the book and you allude to that in several places during your book also uh, in in uh, conversations that the chinese officials have uh, among themselves and at some point and you know i'm not going to give out any spoilers so you also talk about some of the subtle chinese psychological uh, 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 you know what do you call uh what's the word it's not brainwashing but it's a indoctrination that also takes place uh, of course in there but uh this is you know a a, a continuation of uh, and i can see you know why you call it the bharat series but it's a continuation of uh, what you have been writing since i think 2008 when you began with the rosabal line right where uh so 
let's let's uh, step and talk about the bharat the series why the bharat the series and it was there like you know one two five books that you had in mind when you you know started out did no, you call fact, it the bharat Abhinav, series abhinav it wasn't even a series when i started out uh, frankly i mean but you know if you see uh, like for example someone would read a book like the vault of vishnu and say hey this, this is based on the indo china relationship so it has really nothing to do with uh with uh, let's say a book like let's say chanakya's chant which is entirely based out of the kingdom of magadha uh but if you really think about it uh take something like for example chinese foreign policy uh you know we we know that uh, to a very great extent china's foreign policy is influenced by sunzu's art of war and uh, sunzu says that uh, all warfare is based on deception and when we are able we should seem unable we are, when we are in action we must seem inactive when we are near we should seem far when far the enemy should think that we are near uh in other words this was all strategy sunzu strategy strategy but you know uh, think about this if china can look to sunzu then india has kautilya whose uh, strategic views were no less profound uh, so uh, he says that if the ends can be achieved by non military means even by methods of intrigue and duplicity an armed conflict is not advised and any activity which harms the progress of the enemy engaged in similar stuff is also to be considered as progress uh, and then of course most importantly he talks about gdp he says that the prosperous one becomes the victorious one so if you really think about it the two books when i'm uh, when we are talking about two books which seem utterly divergent uh which is the vault of vishnu and chanakya's chant they are actually connected by a thread which is in terms of strategic thinking so what i really wanted to bring about was uh, a a a series and this the series approach took place only after around the third book uh the rosabal line was an independent book um and chanakya's chant was written as an independent title and then i realized no but there is a commonality to them because in all instances i am looking at in some ways the word bharatiya in some ways i am trying to consider whether it is in terms of history whether it's culture whether it's geography uh, whether it is uh, uh, whether it is science philosophy there are so many elements and it doesn't necessarily need to be about the geographical landmass called bharat but it is also about ideas and views uh, which were fundamentally bharatiya in nature and so by the time we reached the third book that's the time when i sat with my publisher and i said hey listen you know i mean there seems to be one common thread running through this so why don't we label it the bharat series so it was only when the fourth book the sialkot saga came out that we rebranded all the previous books as the bharat series ha ah. and you know it's interesting you talked about chanakya's chant and then uh, you know you mentioned uh, some of the statecraft advice written by sunzu in the art of war and i think in your book you also say what the tragedy is that the chinese have read uh, uh, chanakya but we have uh, not bothered to read sunzu and Absolutely. there Absolutely. is so much of statecraft even in in my favorite uh, book the mahabharat you know uh, whether it is vidurniti or so many other places Absolutely. and in What? fact uh, uh, in in fact abhinav according to me a lot of people look at the kurukshetra war and think that that is uh, the uh, you know to a very great extent the ultimate in terms of warcraft or statecraft in some ways but actually if you go further down towards the shanti parva 
that according to me is even further evolved in terms of you know because it's it's far easier to think strategically during war time it's even more difficult to think during peace time so exactly. <laughs> exactly i mean the you know the raj dharm the apad dharm and the dan dharm parvas they i mean here is uh, you know the the compiler uh, uh, the author what call it whatever you will of the mahabharat who laid it out that guys you know here is what you do it in times of peace here is what you do in times of distress it's a it's sad and but i think uh, uh, we'll uh, talk about that maybe at some other time sure. now the other thing i wanted to talk to you again staying with the vault of vishnu for just a few more minutes kanchipuram yeah now living in bangalore I've, you know we've been to kanchi a few times and it is truly i think the only other town that approaches it in being called the uh, the town of temples is probably kumbakonam but many people don't know as part of their history that yes. kanchi is more than just a temple town it has been the birthplace of dynasties yes and uh, the connections that you bring over uh, into you know in in your book to kanchi are are no less uh, staggering yes. uh in anything in particular that led you to you know obviously in the plot it all fits together but anything that led you to pick kanchi as uh, as as a town in in your research or you know it was it one of several places that you were thinking of for, for me kanchi was just fascinating because of the pallava connection frankly i mean uh, and the moment one talks pallavas then one has to bring in the cambodia connection and that is just again sort of it it makes you realize i mean my, i mean i think uh, my dear friend sanjeev sanyal's book uh, about the ocean of churn uh, was was one of those where suddenly you realize that my god when we are talking about this entity called india or bharat uh, how much wider was it and what was the extent to which ideas had traveled uh, and if you really think about it even in terms of our own mythology you you can have so called 300 versions of the ramayana uh, which includes for example the lav ramayana in which you know ram is a bodhisattva so you can imagine the extent to which these ideas had traveled and i found it rather strange because most of my books had been dealing mostly with the north indian stuff that was going on and we almost treat the the deccan uh as as if it's sort of not part of indian history uh which uh i mean i'm also guilty guilty of that because you know uh, five books uh, really did not have any element of uh, that south indian uh, sort of flavor uh except for possibly the the sialkot saga which had a little element of travancore in it but other than that uh most of the books have dealt with north indian history and i found that this was actually a far more robust uh historical narrative to be providing because here were kings i mean and fr- frankly there was not much to distinguish uh the pallava kings uh from uh from the uh, cambodian kings uh you know so i mean in in the sense that if you really think about it uh, uh kanchi and cambodia were actually one ancient uh, sort of axis in some ways uh and then when you go back to the very ancient story of khambu raja uh the south indian king who traveled uh and faced opposition from a beautiful lady on a mountain uh and then eventually defeated and married her now of course a lot of that we know is probably some element of mythological and fantasy also 
but it's such a wonderful story and that the country they jo jointly ruled uh, came to be known as uh, Kambuja Desa and their uh, descendants were the Khmer people and then the country eventually began to be called uh, Kampuchea and then Cambodia. Uh, and then you go a little further down and then you realize the story of a king called Bhima, the younger brother of the, the so-called Pallava king, Simha Vishnu. And he travels and marries a princess and then is crowned the Cambodian king. Um, I, I, I find it fascinating that you have Cambodian kings taking on the suffix Varman, uh, which, which is pretty much like the Pallava kings. Uh, you know, or f the fact that it wasn't just a one-way street, and that you also had uh, you also had Cambodian kings being brought uh, into Kanchi uh, when they did not have successors. Like, for example, when uh, the yeah, Palwa king uh, Parmeshwara Varman died, uh, then it was a successor of Bhima who was brought in. So, if you really look at the two-way interplay that was going on here, it was fascinating, uh, and. For whatever reason, we, we you know, we we uh, we Indian uh, historical and mythological fiction authors uh, have have treated this as one black hole in some ways. So um, I, I I thought that this was the right time uh, to do it, and plus, of course, it linked in beautifully uh, with the martial arts story, and so it was just sort of you know, exactly, and good. I'm going to hold on to that point and I'm going to come to you uh, on that part and just uh, again a little bit. But now I want to talk a little bit about your, see, in your fiction series, there's a Bharat series, uh, you know, uh, that you have uh, written, I think, about five, six books now. But in between in 2015 and 17, you also found the time to co-author two books with James Patterson and, sure. uh, you know, the private Indian, private Delhi series. Uh, how did that uh, come about? Uh, Abhinav, actually... Partly one of the reasons for that happening was because I, as an individual, am always very, very worried about being compartmentalized. I mean, I am always paranoid that people will say, oh, Ashwin Sanghi is that historical and mythological fiction writer. Uh, and uh, in other words, in some ways, a label gets attached to your name that this is what you do. Uh, whereas... Frankly, the only label that I ever want is the label of a storyteller. Uh, you know, when I go to lectures and events, people think that I am some Vidwan, that I'm a historian, that I'm a theologian, that I'm in some way, some, some of them even treat me as some sort of philosopher uh, of sorts. And I have to keep telling them that, listen, guys, you know, when I write a book, at that time, I do a lot of research, but it's not as if I've come to that particular story having known everything about it. I knew very little about it. And in the process of writing the book, I got to know a lot more about it. But now if you su suddenly imagine that just because Ashwin could write the vault of Vishnu, uh, which was this Pallava story, therefore he will also know everything that happened in the Chola period. No, Ashwin does not. So in that sense, uh, what I do is I simply take a construct of history, mythology, uh, philosophy, science, and I use them as my construction materials in order to spin a good yarn. Uh, and uh, so if you're spinning a good yarn, then does it matter whether you're in the space of history or mythology or science or philosophy, or should something as simple as crime also be able to allow you to spin a yarn? And that's mm. how uh, I, I said, hey, listen, this is something totally new, fresh, innovative, 
uh, and I would love to try my hand at it. I had already read a few of the James Patterson books, particularly the Alex Cross series. So mm -hmm. I was a fan of sorts. And at that time, uh, in 2014, uh, a dear friend of mine from uh, Random House happened to be stationed in the UK. And <clears throat> James Patterson's literary uh, uh, representative for uh, Europe and the rest of the world, other than US, was also stationed out of that same office in London. And these two ladies got talking. And uh, James's person said that, hey, listen, you know, James wants to write a thriller that's set in India. And my friend turned around and said, hey, listen, I have the right thriller writer for you. And so, you know, hum, hum ke India mein arranged marriage hota hai. this was an arranged <laughs> marriage where, where two ladies got together over lunch and they figured it out. What a blow for patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you don't want to be, uh, you know, boxed into one category as a writer of, uh, you know, particular kind. Okay. Now you wrote the Thirteen Steps series. Now, see, I have two questions for you. First of all, thirteen is not exactly, you know, a number that comes to mind uh, to a lot of people when they want to start something or name something or, you know, the second is. If that is not interesting enough, the second thing you had is 13 steps to what uh, uh, luck. Yes. Like, this is, uh, uh, you know, com trying to combine two absolutely, you know, polar opposites uh, and smashing them in, in, in the hopes of getting fusion. And I'm sure there's a fascinating story behind that. Well, uh, there is actually because, <clears throat> you know, uh, a lot of people uh, know me, of course, as this writer today. Uh, who has been moderately successful, but uh, they do not know the backstory of Ashwin Sanghi, uh, that uh, my my education was in economics. So I have a BA in economics and I have an MBA in finance. Uh, and for the better part of 15 years, I was uh, actively involved in running a family business. Uh, and uh, so literary pursuits was not something that was uh, ever uh, sort of mapped out or even uh, in my realm of possibilities, as it were. And uh, uh, then sometime around 2002, 2003, when I ended up visiting uh, Srinagar and a chance visit to the Rosabal Shrine uh, resulted in a deep fascination for that particular tomb. And uh, over the next year or two, I wanted to research everything that I could. It eventually resulted in that first book, The Rosabal Line. And that is when I started applying to publishers and literary agents. And uh, when I applied to them, I realized that most of them were either not replying back or if they were replying back, they were saying thank you, but no thank you. And so eventually there was a situation where I had about roughly 47 literary agents and publishers telling me, you know, for lack of a better term, get lost. Uh, and uh, I just was really down on my luck in that sense. Now, in our house, uh, my father uh, used to, uh, you know, uh, meet with a, a dear family friend of ours. And uh, the two of them would meet over the weekends and they would have their whiskey together. Uh, and uh, this uh, Punjabi friend of my dad's, he, he said, Beta, kya ho gaya? Tum bade depressed lag rahe ho. So I said, Uncle, main kya karun? 47 logon ne keh diya hai ki bhai, thank you, but no thank you. So he said... Uh, Remember one thing, Beta, that, uh, you know, life is 99% about luck. So he was having his Johnny Walker uh, black label. So both of them, father and him, they 
used to pour for each other because they knew that they will be generous with one another so they used to pour these large patiala pegs for one another so he had his full peg lying with him he said no in life 99% is about good luck so i said but uncle then what is that 1% that 1% must be a uh, hard work efficiency management talent resources networking there are so many things which play a role and uh, abhinav he took his uh, whiskey and he drained it instantly and he then put the glass down on the table and he said beta 99% is good luck and 1% is bloody good luck <laughs> so uh, i i was I, i you know at that time i think maybe i was too depressed or i was too young to really be able to understand it but many many years later after i had already become a successful author uh i was at a lit fest in chennai and a young lady asked me about the role of luck uh, and i narrated the story to her and uh, she followed me outside the auditorium and she said sir if your story is to be believed then in that case i may as well sit in my house and watch television all day because if it's 99% luck and 1% bloody good luck main kuch bhi nahi karu automatically jo aana hoga wo aayega so uh, when i heard that and you know my publisher gautam padmanabhan was standing next to me uh, in that visitors area so he started laughing and he said okay she's put you on a spot now you better explain what do you mean by 1% bloody good luck <laughs> and uh, that is when i started realizing that those who we consider to be lucky are not necessarily people who have some great opportunities raining down on them from the heavens it's the fact that they know how to make the best of those opportunities uh so they have gone through a process of being able to recognize those opportunities when they come and they are better prepared in order to take advantage of those opportunities when they present themselves uh and i wanted to explain that through uh, a small little book and of course in you know 13 of course is it gets a it gets a very bad rap you know it's uh, you know down the ages there have been so many reasons why we consider 13 to be a bad number including the you know absence of the 13th law from the code of hammurabi and the fact that judas was the 13th to sit at the table of the last supper and that you know friday the 13th began to be looked at as an unlucky date and so it was almost tongue in cheek it was ironic to say when yes. you say 13 steps to bloody good luck uh, well it's almost like saying listen guys please understand that it's not about luck uh it's about a lot of things that you have to do uh so that and and that title really worked because uh, no one expected that that title would really sell because after all i'm known as a fiction writer and that to a historical mythological fiction writer so no one really expected that we would sell too much but it went into multiple print runs within that first year itself so uh uh and then of course my publisher came back to me and said that since we we could take a concept like luck and we could demystify it then why can't we demystify so many other topics uh, that deserve to be demystified and that's how then a series was born it's it's fascinating you know uh, i remember reading someone said uh, you know that the hard he said the harder i work the luckier i get sure of course 
uh and uh, the uh, but you know i mean that that is one part of it but there are also uh for example there is the roman philosopher seneca who said that luck is simply a matter of preparation meeting opportunity uh, uh or uh for example of course my favorite definition of luck is the the french actor jean cocteau who said that of course i believe in luck uh how do you explain the success of those whom you don't like so you know i mean so uh, uh everyone's definition of luck is very different in the world uh but the idea was to try and give you some sort of a framework in terms of trying to tell you um uh, what is it that people who we consider to be lucky uh what is it that they actually do uh and i Uh, broke that down into basically a very simple formula known as 3R. 3R meaning raise, recognize, and respond. How do you raise the number of opportunities that come your way? So, for example, if you are sitting on a flight, some next to someone, uh, do you sit quietly and read your book, or do you strike up a conversation because that may turn out to be someone who may be very interested in what you are doing? So, it may be an opportunity to have that conversation. so how do you raise the opportunities second how do you recognize them so in other words are you in a position to be able to distinguish between those opportunities which are worthwhile and those which may not be so worthwhile and finally of course how do you respond so how do you make sure that you respond to the opportunity in a way that it can actually play out in a lucky manner so uh, that is what that book was about needless to say i think i i now i'm so fascinating this fascinated i have to go get that uh, book please do it's it's, <laughs> it's a uh, for a voracious reader like you it will not even take you an hour or two hours to read it it's full, filled with little little interesting nuggets uh, uh, and anecdotes and uh, uh, most importantly uh, i think most of it is common sense it is just a reminder of the common sense that we already have common sense is very very uncommon so i think periodic reminders can't hurt any of us uh, ashwin uh i i want to move to a slightly different uh, uh, set of uh, questions now and since we are the index book club and we have uh, uh, you know several writers aspiring writers who have started exploring this genre of uh, you know mythological fiction or fiction based on our epics our itihasa puranas and all let's talk about the process of writing because again a book such as yours just doesn't get written because you know feel like it and then you know two days later Absolutely. the book is done there is a huge amount of work that goes into it so i want to pick your brain a little bit so you know there is the coming up with the idea doing the research doing the plotting the outlining the writing and all of that now some authors like stephen king for example he doesn't believe in doing any kind of you know outlining detailing he says uh, you know just write looks, with the flow. he looks down on it in fact stephen king looks down on it correct then there are there are some who say that you know for each scene that i will have i just write one line so that serves as a guide post for me uh, there are some like i think arl stein whoever who has said that i do my plotting in detail then there is pg woodhouse who used to spend more time on research than on writing and all what is your approach to you know if you are starting a new book project for example well uh, typically for me it happens in stages uh, stage 1 is ideation uh, and ideation is not something that you just press a button and an idea pops out 
uh, I have generally found uh, Abhinav that some of our finest ideas are when we are not planning to write a book. So they they emerge through the day, they emerge through the seasons, the months. Uh, but the problem is that the vast majority of us do not capture the idea at that moment. It's almost the equivalent of a photographer seeing something very, very interesting and taking a snapshot of it at that moment. So either he's captured it or otherwise it's gone. Uh, so hmm. uh, the way at least I operate is that I maintain a journal. My journal is maintained on an email account. Uh, so that is an email account which only Ashwin Sanghi uses to email himself. Um, and it could be it could be something that has emerged from our discussion today. I may find that you've asked me a question that has left me zapped. So I may email that to myself. I may be reading a book where I come across an interesting paragraph. I'll take a snapshot and email it to myself. Uh, I may be on the web and look at an interesting online video, or uh, I am traveling into a city and I see an interesting site or a hoarding or a message, and I keep sending this sort of stuff to myself. The idea is that I have this journal of ideas, which I go back to whenever I'm starting the process of writing a new book, because at that time, I'm not looking for fresh ideas. I'm simply looking at the ideas that I've already captured. Uh, so, and then choosing between them. So that is the first stage. The second stage is the research stage. Uh, so the research stage typically uh, will uh, involve uh, different levels of research. For example, the Walter Vishnu involved visits into China, but also involved uh, uh, reading up about Zhuangzang and reading the, the, the narratives of Zhuangzang uh, related to his visit into India. Uh, but if you take, for example, a book like, let's say, uh, Chanakya's Chant, it was simply reading the Arthashastra and the Mudra Rakshas and reading them enough times to be able to figure out as to what was common between the politics of 2300 years ago versus the politics of today. Uh, or if you take, let's say, a book like uh, the Krishna Key, it involved not only a reading of the Mahabharat, but also a reading of uh, also a visit into places like uh, Somnath and Mathura and Dwarka, all the places associated with the Krishna life story. Uh, if you uh, look at a book like, let's say, uh, Keepers of the Kal Chakra, it involved actually six months sitting with a friend of mine who was an engineer from IIT Bombay and making him teach me the fundamentals of quantum theory, which I, you know, I mean, being a BA student, I had no clue of, uh, you know, so it was like quantum theory 101 uh, in order to be able to then understand it and apply it into the world of spirituality and philosophy. So, so let me, let me just interrupt you here, Ashwin. The process of, you know, you pick up an idea that appeals to you and then doing the research, I'm reasonably sure it won't be a linear process because in the course of your research, you will find things that uh, possibly lead you back to the drawing board. Of course. So uh, the, 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 the these two stages are not sequential. They happen, you know, very often you'll do research and then you'll say, oh, but why is my idea this? Then you go back in order to re-evolving the idea. So these go more or less hand in hand. Uh, uh, the Krishna key, for example, uh, I had always uh, had a fascination for the idea of whether the Mahabharat was a real story or whether we could consider it mythological. Well, whereas my personal view was that it was a historical event, which over the years, because it was uh, narrated by generation after generation, it became more and more fantastical. But 
the, the kernel of truth in the uh, historical veracity of those events was very much there. Uh, right. So because I had that idea and I happened to be at someone's party where I ended up meeting up someone who was royally drunk that particular evening. And luckily for me that day, I was also four or five drinks down. So I did not find it unusual for this guy to be saying what he did to me. But what he let on to me rather confidentially was that he considered that he was the 10th incarnation of Vishnu. Now, at that moment, honestly speaking, uh, I didn't know what to think. I came back, I went off to sleep. The next morning, I got up with a hangover. And then I remembered what this guy had told me. And that's when I got in touch with a dear friend of mine who's based out of Chandigarh and is a is a scholar, a bit of a Vidhvan. In, in, and I said, Yaar, tumne ye Kalki Puran padha hai kya? And he said, yes. In fact, I have a very good translation. So he sent me the PDF uh, into English of the Kalki Puran. And I read it that day. And I said, wow, this is almost like the revelations from the Bible. It's, you know, this, this, this avenger of sorts will come riding on a white horse with this uh, with this sword in his hand and will avenge all evil and purge the the earth of evil uh, this is outstanding and that's when i decided to merge those two stories the story of a 10th incarnation of vishnu in present times and the idea of the mahabharat having been a historical event uh, so this often happens this interplay between those two stages but essentially i will end up spending somewhere around maybe 9 months to 12 months uh, uh, stuck between stage one and two. And then wow. that's, that's the time when I move into the third stage, which is the plotting stage. And uh, unlike Stephen King, I can't write without a plot. I need a detailed plot. Uh, what does it look like? You know, because doing a lot of research, one of the drawbacks could be that one falls in love with the research and, and one wants to put all of that research in the book it itself. Does. Of course it does. So, so, how, how, how do you balance so that then? Th that's precisely the point that when you are sitting down to develop your plot, uh, you know, you follow certain... Now, for example, in my case, my, my plot outlines are always done on Excel spreadsheets. So for me, one, row, so one row is typically a chapter uh, on a spreadsheet. And okay. so uh, the first column will be chapter, chapter number. So it's one, two, three, four, five. Then the uh, the next uh, column. Okay, let let's take it in the form of an example. The Sialkot saga is mm -hmm. a book which spans seventy years of two characters, Arvind and Arbaz. Both of them are out to get each other. They are business rivals, political rivals, uh, but their entire life story is narrated through the prism of Indian history over the last seventy years. So uh, uh, the way my plot outline works is that uh, the first column. Uh, uh, is the year 1947, 1948, 1949, all the way down to the 2000s. Uh, then I have uh, two columns, which is Arvind's age and Arbaz's age. So in both instances, I know that, okay, in that year, what was the age of these guys? Then after that, I'm looking at, okay, what would these guys have been doing at in those ages? Were they, were they in school? Were they bunking school? Were they setting up a business? Were they experiencing their first kiss? Were they running a scam? What were they doing? Uh, were they killing someone? So that, those are the next two columns where I'm talking about what they were doing. Then I talk about what is the hook at which I'm going to leave the reader at the end of that chapter. So what is that little nugget of information that I'm not going to reveal at this stage, which will 
force you to get to the next chapter. And finally, of course, I have a final chapter which talks about the backdrop of India. What was happening culturally, socially, economically? What were the great events in that year? Was it the year of the emergency? Was it was it the year when okay. the Dalai Lama came into India? Was it the uh, was it the year of the Indo-China War? What was it? So the idea being that when you are framing those characters, you're framing them in the context of a backdrop. Uh, so typically for me, the the most uh, sort of the, the most structured method uh, is an Excel sheet. Uh, and what it does is it forces a certain discipline in terms of having to establish what happens in that chapter within a couple of hundred words and also mm. forces you to create a hook in order to keep the reader motivated enough to turn the page. The, mo the most difficult quality uh, in commercial fiction writing is to get people to turn the page. Uh, people don't understand it. They think that it's about fancy words. It's about great grammar. It's about stylistic elements. No, you're writing a commercial paperback fiction thriller. In that case, the only thing that you're supposed to be doing is telling a bloody good story. Uh, the, a, the sort of story that a person doesn't want to get up or forces the person to turn the page. So for me, the plot is the stage at which I can do that. I can't do it when I go into the writing stage. I have to do it at the plotting stage. Uh, and because you're doing that plotting, you also, during the plotting stage, you realize that what is the research that you have done, which has no relevance whatsoever to your plot. And those are the research points that you need to knock out because you know that they are going to only slow down your story. So that is, that is what happens during the plotting stage. Typically, that can take anywhere between three to four months for me. Uh, just the plotting stage. Just the plotting stage. And then finally, the the next stage is the writing. By the time I go into the writing stage, Abhinav, at that stage, frankly, it's the easiest part of what I do because the research is done, the ideation is done, the plot is already there, and it's almost like a children's coloring book. The outlines are drawn for you. You, as a kid, need to decide, will I use a red crayon or a green crayon or a blue crayon? within those outlines. So you can still make a few changes to your outline, but the, the fundas are already there for you. So that typically takes me around maybe anywhere around six to seven months. Uh, and then of course that takes me into the final stage, which is the rewrites. Uh, I end up doing at least two or three rewrites. Uh, uh, and uh, then of course it moves into the publisher's hands for editing and so. <clears throat> How substantial are the rewrites? So let's take, for example, about a 350-page uh, book. It will be about eighty to 90,000 words. Yes. When you have finished your first draft and before you have started the rewrite, uh, roughly how long uh, would it be? So uh, typically, actually, the, the rewrites will, you know, I do not keep a track of the number of times that I've actually rewritten chapters while I've been working on the manuscript. Mm -hmm. uh, that in any case has happened along the way. Uh, because very often I, I will go back to a chapter and say, no, no, but I hadn't included that little nugget of information ah. there. So I'll go back to chapter 20, even though I'm working on chapter 50. And then when I read chapter 20, I say, no, no, I need to do a little bit of rework on it. So those rewrites have in any case happened during the time when Correct. I was writing the book. But uh, typically once I'm done with uh, the manuscript, once it's it's over and I've, uh, I've put the three asterisks to indicate that it's the end of the manuscript, then uh, that's the time where typically after a gap of a day, I will again uh, 
print it out as a PDF and put it on my Kindle. Uh, and okay. then I will start reading it as if I'm a reader. Uh, and all the stuff that I'm finding is not moving fluidly. The stuff that doesn't sound right to the ear, the stuff that I feel is causing friction in my appreciation of it as a reader. But how do you do that? Those. But Ashwin, it's your work. You have researched, plotted, outlined, written every word. How do you separate yourself? How do you separate the author from the reader? Uh, very, very difficult. Uh, honestly speaking, I also <laughs> utilize... Uh, I also utilize a few sounding boards. There are about five or seven people in my ecosystem uh, who also end up reading uh, that first draft uh, along with me. Uh, so they will also send me their comments uh, okay. that that this part of it is not seeming right or you know th this seems to be feeling a little forced. Uh, it is not seeming real. Uh, so those are the sort of things that I want. At that stage, I'm not looking for comments about uh, uh, stylistic elements or sentence structure or any of that. Uh, okay. I'm simply looking at the story. That does the story keep you gripped or not? Uh, so I will end up doing at least two or three reads and I'll use the highlighter function of, on Adobe Acrobat in order to ah. keep highlighting those portions that I think I will need to go back to. And then again, a couple of days later, I will sit along with the iPad and my uh, and my uh, uh, Word document, uh, and you know, sort of look at those highlighted portions, uh, see what I need to rework on. Uh, so it's it's a uh, it's a process which happens at least for me normally at least around three times before eventually I will feel comfortable enough to pass it on to my editor, uh, and. Uh, so I, I've always maintained that I'm uh, not a great writer. Uh, I'm a fairly decent uh, storyteller, uh, and uh, uh, I'm a very I'm a good rewriter. Re uh, so uh, you know, sort of moderately good uh, writer, uh, slightly better storyteller, and slightly better rewriter. This is you know. <laughs> For you know, for folks watching this or who will watch this later, this is a masterclass all in itself. And I say this uh, with all sincerity. Uh, you know, we are already 54 minutes into our Q&A, so I don't have to, you know, pretend to be nice to you. I really mean it. Folks, uh, so what to recap, uh, you know, you use Excel for your plotting, uh, Microsoft Word for your writing. And actually, the initial manuscript doesn't get developed on uh, MS Word. MS Word comes into the picture only when the manuscript is completed. During the stage when I'm actually writing it up chapter-wise, uh, I use a, a software called uh, Scrivener, uh, which um, allows me to actually sort of create my outline on corkboard style plotting oh, okay. cards. So okay. uh, I transfer all my material from Excel to Scrivener. Then each of those chapters is written up like a short story in Scrivener then Scrivener allows me to take that entire material and convert it into a single manuscript, which gets exported into Microsoft Word. Uh, ah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I have a funny way of working, I'm sorry. No, no, I'll, I, uh, this is fascinating. And, and you know, maybe someday uh, we'll, uh, you know, 
I'll, I'll share my story of how Excel saved my life in writing my book because I was hopelessly lost. I had I didn't know all of these that things that it book. is. If I recall correctly, I had blurted that book for you, if I remember. Yes, uh, you did. That, so so, uh, and I I remember reading it. So it did not seem by any stretch of the imagination that you were struggling. And and so thank you, Ashwin. And I have to thank. Uh, uh, excel for it it saved my life in because you know all the good advice you have given me had i known that uh, you know 2 years 3 years back i wouldn't have struggled but having used excel i can i can say with personal experience i can totally relate to you know what you have just said uh it so you know don't let no one ever feel like a geek or like a you know bean counter for using excel and i think a scrivener is interesting i will try it out uh and the other thing that uh, you know for people listening your advice that uh, you know don't read it from the point of view of a reader and don't fall in love with your own you know words simply because you have written them i think it's very very important and then the ability to tell a story people have to w- want to turn the page uh, for commercial fiction it was uh, fiction. Orton who said that you know easy reading is damn hard writing uh, so people don't understand how difficult it is to produce easy reading uh because uh the the smoothest khichdi has been cooked for many many hours in order to give you that smoothness of texture uh of a great khichdi or a great biryani so i mean at exactly. the end of the day uh that that process of writing rewriting is so critical in terms of making you know people ask me what what is it that what is it that creates a great best seller you know is there a formula and i say very simple really uh your first paragraph is like a pothole uh which means that a person falls into the pothole and can't come out of it so suck the reader into that story so that they can't get out of that story i'm sure the bmc and bbmp will uh, love, love you it. for that statement absolutely <laughs> love or hate whatever they're two sides of the same coin and then um uh, the second uh, golden rule is that every chapter should end on a hook uh you know when i'm writing a when i'm writing a story uh, you know it was it was the uh, it was the hollywood director alfred hitchcock who said that um, uh, you know the the length of a movie is related to the endurance of the human bladder so uh, which means you can only sit and watch a movie for that much time that uh, your bladder holds out uh, so the way i like to think of my story writing process is that i'm sitting in a room with 10 people sitting in a circle around me and i'm telling them a story uh and uh, uh out of that lot of 10 people there are three or four who need to get up and take a bathroom break but they don't get up and take that bathroom break because the next twist is around the corner so every chapter has to have that hook which will propel you into the next chapter and finally uh the last paragraph of your book uh should almost be like that satisfying burp at the end of a meal uh you know i mean you can have a very good meal but i mean in particularly in the middle east if you haven't burped it means that you didn't enjoy your food it should be that sense of satisfaction that all the loose threads have been resolved that uh it uh, the the hero or the protagonist did not win by chance that you as the reader had an equal opportunity to have been able to solve that puzzle all of those things must fit in that last paragraph where you get that complete sense of satisfaction and resolution 
And of course, most importantly, your last paragraph should make your reader look out for your next book so that you can continue to be a bestseller. So those are the three rules. Easy Fascinating. enough. Easy enough. <laughs> uh, so Ashwin, I have a couple of questions that, that have come in and I think you have pretty much answered in detail one of them, which said that, uh, uh, so the, I'll read out the question. You have said previously, and this is from Deepak, that you are more of a storyteller than a writer. How can a writer become a successful storyteller? Can you give some tips for aspiring writers? And I think you've covered it in great detail, but is there anything you want to add? No, I, I would say that too many people who are looking to come out with either a book or uh, with a novel or a, a novella or a short story, they get too focused on the words. And uh, the words are is, is one part of that entire thing which uh, any editor worth his or her dime uh, can sort out for you. Uh, what most editors cannot do is tell a good story. And if they could have told a good story, then they wouldn't be editors. Uh, so one has to understand that ultimately, the way I see it is that for you take someone like James Patterson, who I worked with on two books. James rarely ever writes a novel, except for the Alex Cross series, where he actually writes out the novel. But otherwise, for most other books, he simply writes out a 30 to 40 page outline, which he shares with his collaborator. And he says, I have written up the story, the entire arc, the entire development, all the twists and turns are already plotted right here. Now go ahead and write it up. Fascinating. So that's the difference between a storyteller and a writer. Uh, there's one more question that uh, are all the characters of the novel fictitious or have you been inspired by any real people in general? Do you borrow traits from real people while you create characters? This question also comes from Deepak. And Deepak is, I know which particular book he is referring to. <laughs> He's referring to Chandakya's chant, where there is this character called Ganga Sagar Mishra, who is a modern day politician, who is the equivalent of the ancient day Chanakya. And Correct. a lot of people ask me, this character, uh, is he based on someone or the other? Is this based on some real life politician? And then I have to explain to them, I said, listen, look at the dimensions of this character. And you will find that this particular thing that he did was related to what Atal Bihari Vajpayee's behavior would have been. You look at this, it looks like Narsimha Rao. You look at this, it looks like Indira Gandhi. You look, look at this element, it looks like Mayavati. I have, there are multiple character traits that I've picked up from multiple politicians and embedded them into this character of Ganga Sagar Mishra. So yes, one does get influenced by real characters. Uh, the, uh, and uh, very often uh, you pick up the entire character. Like for example, going back again to the same uh, uh, story, Chanakya's chant, Ganga Sagar Mishra's uh, style uh, you know, first of all, the name, the style, the fact that he wears a dhuta kur uh, dhoti kurta and he carries an umbrella and has very little hair on his head. These were all influenced by one master ji who comes, who used to come to our house in order to teach us multiplication tables. And when he, when we didn't uh, do our homework properly, he used to take his chata and he used to wrap up. So the, the, that entire image of master ji was very much there in my mind when I wrote up this particular character. So we do get influenced by real world characters. It's just that we explain them in fictional terms because we don't want to get sued. 
and uh <laughs> yeah uh gorav kumar says uh, that uh, okay first he praises me which is fine i'll read it out interviewers asking very relevant questions incidentally he has asked all the questions that i had in my mind kudos to you thank you gorav and then he says ashwin even though you said that commercial page turners should not concentrate much on vocabulary sentence structure etc however i must say your books use quite good words it's a treat to read your works your books keep writing and keep enthralling your readers thank you so much i'm i'm really grateful for those words of praise but let me tell you a lot of my books read the way they do because of a team effort of a lot of people and particularly my my editor who's based out of kolkata who is she is just like she's the most terrifying editor to work with and uh, but at the same time she really makes me readable uh, because uh, but i i think the one thing that should uh, be stressed out here is when i'm saying that it is not relevant to worry about the words or the sentence structure or the grammar uh, i don't mean that you as a writer should not read uh, i think as a as a writer or as a storyteller it's far easier to be able to spin your yarns in case you are continuously exposing yourself to other people's writing uh, and i think uh, the the process of evolving as a writer is a lot to do with the reading process so uh, i think i was very fortunate because i had my paternal grand uncle who used to send me one book every week uh, during my growing up years uh, during my lifetime while my school and college education was going on the old man sent me more than 300 books uh, ranging from classics to uh, mythology to philosophy uh, to uh, uh, to even fast paced uh uh fiction so i think that just created that necessary uh it hardwired my brain in terms of what are the little tricks of storytelling what uh, you know do you do you need like for example when i was working on a book with james patterson he said listen you you know you you told me who this guy is in chapter 20 you need to tell me in chapter 20 can't we push this to chapter 40 we'll we'll extend the suspense you know or for example in chapter 4 you've brought me this guy who is killed instead can't we kill him in chapter 1 let's start with the murder so there are lots and lots of little little things which you don't realize initially when you start out writing and then over a period of time you begin to pick up on these things i have always maintained that commercial fiction writing is not an art please make a note of this it is not an art it is a craft so it is not like an mf hussein standing in front of a canvas and deciding that okay i'm going to use broad brush strokes and i'm doing this uh, it's almost like a carpenter making chairs and deciding that okay his first chair is going to be very different to the 100th chair and the 100th chair will be very different to the 1000th chair so i always maintain that don't take yourself too seriously because you are work in progress all that you want to do is you want to be 5% better than your last book that's it this is <clears throat> very true uh we'll close with uh, with one last question uh, ashwin and then uh, you know uh, any final words that you have so the question comes from neeraj singh who asks sir when are uh, uh, when you're choosing an idea to write a book what should be more important for an author according to you market demand evaluation or that you like the idea 
Sure. Um, frankly, uh, Abhinav, uh, I would, at least the way I like to approach this is that at the time when I'm ideating, I don't want to think about the market at that time. Uh, because otherwise, there will be many, many stories that will never get written. Uh, at the time when I was writing the Rosabal line, I would never have approached that in the days when I was writing the Rosabal line, which I'm talking about is now the period in the run up up to 2006. Uh, so those three or four years, uh, if you were an Indian writer, you were pretty much expected either to be writing romance, uh, campus, campus romance, uh, or alternatively, you were expected to be writing award-winning fiction like an Arundhati Roy or a, uh, or a Salman Rushdie. Uh, or alternatively, you were expected to be writing family sagas, dynastic uh, stories. Uh, and finally, if you didn't want to be in the world of fiction, then you wrote a non-fiction book on how to make the best biryani. Now, those were the spaces that you as an Indian author functioned in. If you were writing a commercial thriller, then most of the publishers at that time didn't want to publish you because they already had a very neat little business running with the Dan Browns and the Jeffrey Archers and the Sydney Sheldons. So in those days, if you went to any bookstore and you looked at the bestseller rack, it was always foreign authors uh, who were at the top of that rack because that space was not open to Indian authors. Uh, and so if I had if you think of someone like me, Ashwin Sanghi, a Marwadi businessman who decides to turn into a thriller writer and then writes a story about Jesus Christ possibly having survived the crucifixion and having traveled to India and lying buried in a tomb called Rosabal. Uh, and these guys would look at me and say, have you lost your mind? I mean, you know, so there was no marketability of that story at the time when I, it was written. But I'm so glad that I wasn't thinking about the market at that point of time. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written the Rosabal line. This is where I'm coming from, that there are many, many stories that need to be told. Don't put on your marketing cap at the time when you are ideating. Put on the marketing cap once you are done with the manuscript and you have a polished product in your hands. At that point of time, become the Amir Khan of the world and decide that, okay, I'm going to bloody next spend next three months or six months marketing the shit out of this. That's fine. Uh, at that point of time, don't any longer be a writer or a storyteller because now your job is to be a banya and to figure out as to how many books this book can reach, uh, how many books can be sold and how many hands can actually hold that book. Uh, so there are two very distinct phases and one should not mix them up. Wonderful advice, Ashwin. Any last words uh, for uh, our viewers? Well, uh, uh, from the questions that you've asked me in the last one half of this interview, I take it that the aim is to reach out to a lot of people who are aspiring writers. So for Fair them, enough. I have a couple of, uh, you could say, bulleted points as words of parting advice. Number one, uh, that don't think of yourself as a writer, be a storyteller. Uh, that's very important. Uh, number two, that... Uh, don't lose the day job. Uh, it's, it's important. It's very difficult to write when you're hungry. So keep the income flowing. Writing is something that you can do at any time. Uh, uh, you know, I wrote the Rosabal line in the middle of the night between 10 o'clock and 12.30 in the morning. So, you know, there's no reason why you can't take out two hours or an hour 
every day to be able to work on your writing passion. But keep your day, it's because it's going to be several months or years by the time that royalties will be able to sustain you. So keep the day job. Uh, the third is that don't worry too much about what the critics say. Uh, if you're going to all the time be worrying about what someone else perceives of your work, uh, then you will never be able to write the story that you really want to tell from your heart. So it's, it's very important to develop a thick skin. Uh, we as writers, what we do is it's, we are almost the equivalent of, uh, you know, we've taken off all our clothes. Now we are standing langa <laughs> and we've got up onto a stage and there is a thousand people surrounding us and everyone has a rock in their hand and they have the freedom to throw the rock at you. Uh, so whether you like it or not, that's the nature of creative pursuit. No matter how good a movie is, there will be 10%, 20%, 30% people who come out and say, but there was something else that was missing. So don't worry too much on that front. Uh, the fourth thing I would say is that uh, it is uh, important for all those who uh, want to be uh, writers and want to, over a period of time, remain in that space to understand that whatever, if you are successful, then understand that the words that came on your page were not your words. They were a blessing from Ma Saraswati who put those words into your head. So just bow down to Ma and say, thank you Ma for, for deeming that I'm worthy of receiving these words and uh, keep your feet on the ground. Thank you, Ashwin. Words to live by. And uh, uh, again, for all those who have watched and we will put this up on YouTube in a few days. And I hope you watch this. Uh, there is more value and worth in it than, uh, than I think uh, uh, I would have, uh, you know, uh, uh, expected. So Thank you, Ashwin, once again, for coming to the Syndic Book Club author Q&A. Uh, and folks, thank you. Thank you so much, Abhinav. And as one of, your, uh, one of your commenters said, thank you for those wonderful questions. It was a delight to be able to be in conversation with you. And thank you to the audience members for being part of this. Thanks. Thank you. My pleasure.